Will you please pray with me? Now, O Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So I got to do something I don't do very often this week. Uh, I think it was about the second time in 10 years I got to play golf. And uh, typically at this stage, the preacher shares something really funny. And if I'd have thought of it, I would have had me being videoed playing golf for you. So you could have all laughed at me as Skip Howe and Vance Lassard from our 11 o'clock service tried to teach me how to play properly. But it did remind me of a golf joke that I heard, which actually relates to our theme for today. Handy. So uh, it goes like this. A golfer is walking down the road carrying his clubs when he sees an Arab man being held up at gunpoint. He pulls out a wedge and smashes it over the back of the robber's head knocking him unconscious. You probably saved my life, says the grateful Arab. I'm a member of the Saudi royal family, and I have the power and money to give you anything you desire as a reward. The golfer glances down at his sorry-looking golf bag and says, well, some golf clubs would be nice. Well, two weeks later, the sheikh's secretary calls him up. "Uh, We've got your golf clubs, he says, but the sheikh would like to apologize to you in advance. Only three of them have swimming pools. (laughs) Wait for it. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about money. I don't know if you have as much as the shake had, but we're talking about money and uh, the story that money tells in our lives. I wonder what kind of story actually money tells in your life. Would it be more of a fantasy or a fairy tale story? Would it be a, a comedy, perhaps? Maybe a thriller? Or worst of all, perhaps a horror story in your life? I'm not sure. This can be a really awkward and tough topic to deal with because, you know, often we feel like, well, actually, we do have so much, and yet perhaps we often give so little. Uh, But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it just because it's a difficult topic. Uh, The Christian financial expert, Howard Dayton, uh, he actually counts up that there are 2,350 different references in Scripture about money and possessions, 2,350. Jesus talked far more about money than he talked about love, heaven, and hell combined. Interesting, isn't it? And see, the thing is that often we, when we start to talk about this, we start to think that money is bad. But Scripture doesn't say money is bad, does it? It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is actually value neutral. It's just a thing that we use. It's a, a thing we need in our society. But it can become toxic in our lives if we're not careful. John Wesley, the famous evangelist and preacher from England, said this, Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. Well, this week we're going to talk about how we use our money and our possessions and how it reveals our very hearts. How we use our money and possessions reveals our very hearts. It reveals what our faith is like. It reveals what our trust in God is like. It reveals what our idols are in our life. It reveals our real priorities. It reveals perhaps some things that we don't like to think about ourselves at times. Times when we're greedy perhaps. But also things when we are generous as well. When things are positive too. Yes, we can see all these things by simply looking at our bank accounts. They reveal who we believe is in charge or who's in control of our lives, whatever we might say. They reveal whether or not we truly trust in God. And they reveal who we really believe this life is all about. So turn to your scripture sheets. Uh, They're on the inside of your announcement sheet. And we're going to look at our gospel reading from Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 
through 44. And the context of this reading is that it is the Passover. So it's a going on in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's ridden into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Uh, this is Holy Week, basically. And uh, he's ridden in in this great, you know, this great fanfare of glory almost. He comes in Jerusalem and he starts to teach. And he's teaching in the temple. And it's busy because it's Passover. So all the Jewish diaspora, that's the people from all around Jerusalem and around the Mediterranean, they're coming in to, to uh, celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It's a big deal. And so it's really busy. Sitting in the temple, it's busy, it's crowded, and he starts to teach about the greatest commandments. We see that just before this passage, teaching about, they're asking, someone asked him, you know, what, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to teach, and he gives them a warning. He's warning them about the Pharisees and the scribes, those people who seek to live by the letter of the law, but more than that, they add laws to the laws. And he says, watch out for their sham righteousness. It's all a sham. They're all for show. You can see, you know, what looks like a great thing on the outside. But once you get on into the inside, it's really very dirty inside there. What he wants to see is wholehearted devotion. And then we come to this story and verse 41. And I think it's to really illustrate these things. It says this, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Now, the temple is no longer there. If you go to Jerusalem, as I had the chance to do a couple of years ago, it's no longer there. You have the, uh, the Dome with the Rock, which is a Muslim uh, place where they worship. But um, the temple was this huge building that dominated the skyline as you approached Jerusalem. You couldn't miss it. And like I said, it was really busy because people were coming in for the Passover. And there's some dispute about where the treasury itself was, but it's believed that it had to have been in one of the uh, closer places to the front of the temple so that the women could give money. Okay, They wanted to make sure the women didn't miss out as well. And so they made sure that the women could give, so it was probably in the court of the women, uh, so that the men and the women could both give money there. And so inside this, uh, this, this treasury where they would put money in, there were these 13 trumpet-shaped urns, okay? So they were big at the top and then smaller at the bottom, and they would go down into the treasury boxes themselves. And six of those were for particular things, particular kinds of offerings, and then the other seven were just free will offerings that you could throw your money into if you wanted to. Well, Jesus is there, isn't he? And what's he doing? He's people-watching. Okay, ever like to people watch? Just sit and watch people in a non-creepy way, okay? <laughs> Just watch what they're doing. And Jesus is doing that, okay? And we've all done it. And notice that as he watches, he sees mostly wealthy people coming and putting their money in. And he comments on that, okay? But he's not down on them. He doesn't say many rich people were doing a bad thing by putting in large sums of money. It was just so terrible. No, he doesn't say it's bad, but he does notice this one woman in the midst of them. Look at verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. This woman, this widow, this poor widow comes and she puts in these tiny coins. I've actually brought one with me. When I was in Israel a couple of years ago, I won this by answering a question right for our tour guide. And right here, you can hardly see it, is one of the coins she would have put in. I'm going to pass it around so you can see it. It's called a, a mite, right? That's because the story is called the widow's mite. Tiny, tiny thing. And there they... You know, I had to get permission, you know, you have to have a signed document so you can leave the country of Israel. But there are thousands and millions of these things. They dig them up all the time because they're so small and they were worth so little at that time. So she 
gives these two pennies, basically. Okay, be, or these two, these two coins that add up to about a penny. And uh, it's a bit like in England when I was a kid growing up, that we had a, a halfpenny or a halfpenny. And so you could go to the candy store with a half penny and buy a few pieces of candy with that. They'd weigh them out and you could do that. This was how small and insignificant this coin was. And it's probably a good representation of how that widow herself felt. She probably felt small and insignificant like these coins, not realizing also that she was being watched. And what we discover in the next verse is that this is everything she has left, though. It might be small and insignificant to the most of the people there, but this is everything she has. She gives out of her poverty, not out of her abundance, as we find out later that the wealthy people are. And really, if you stop and think about it, it's an incredibly irresponsible action, isn't it? Incredibly irresponsible. Imagine if a woman came to you, she said, I've got 100 bucks left for the week, okay? Uh, But I want to give it to Jesus. Uh, But I, I won't have money for food then. Okay, I won't be able to pay my electric bill, maybe, but I, I want to give it to Jesus. You know, if someone did that, you'd probably counsel against that, right? And say, well, hold on, hold on. Be sensible. You should at least save 50 bucks so you can eat this week, right? Don't want you to starve. Now, imagine if a man came to you and he said, well, I've got all this money and this wealth. I'm doing really well in my business. I think I need to build some bigger barns so I can store up the grain that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm acquiring. I'm doing so well. I want to make sure I have enough for retirement. I want to make sure that I'm setting aside money, that I can just make sure I'm going to be comfortable when it comes to that time. You'd probably say, well done. That's a great idea. You should do that. Be safe and secure right now. Remember that story from the Bible? The man dies that night, doesn't he? He dies that night. He never gets to enjoy what he's stockpiling. Who is the more responsible one? In the world's eyes, certainly the man who stockpiles, right? But in God's kingdom, it's the one who gives everything, everything. She's the equivalent of someone who makes about $20,000 a year uh, and, you know, perhaps gives away 5000 She gives away a quarter of her income compared to someone who maybe makes 250000 and gives, or maybe 500000 even, and gives away about twenty or 25000 You know, they give away more money, right, than the poorer person, but actually it's the poorer person who's giving away far more. Interestingly, statistics show that people making $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give to charity than someone making an annual income of $75,000. Isn't that intriguing? People who make less are eight times more likely to give. Well, let's turn to verse 43. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. So Jesus is seeing a teaching moment here, right? It's an object lesson. Teachers will know all about that. And what he's seeing is the heart of a true believer, and he wants to communicate this to his disciples who are there with him. She has given more because she has given everything. She has fully trusted God. In that culture, much like our culture, someone wealthy giving more money, the equivalent of more money, would have been lifted up and lauded and praised and seen as, well, what a fine person. They would have been the person you would have put on the board, right? And said, well, clearly they're the kind of person we need on the board or they're the person we need in church leadership because they give so much. Aren't they great? But Jesus does the opposite, doesn't he? His kingdom is that upside down world, right? It's upside down. And so what he does is he lifts up the person who gives far less, but he actually gives 
everything. He wants the disciples to understand that the call to the gospel life is a call to absolute surrender to God and total trust in him. And he's actually about to prove it. Like I said, it's Holy Week. So where's he heading? Heading to the cross, isn't he? He's about to head to the cross. He is going to give up everything that he has in order that we might live. He's saying, following me requires everything. Well, in verse 44, we read, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She puts in everything. And I wonder at what cost. As she does that, I wonder whether she's thinking, not sure I'm going to buy some bread for tonight. I wonder at what cost it is to her. Or maybe, how am I going to be able to afford to keep on living in the house that I'm living in? C.S. Lewis says this, though. I love this quote by him. Well, I don't love it. It's really hard. (laughs) He says, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. I wonder when was the last time that I gave to the point that I missed out? When was the last time I gave to the point that I missed out on doing something because of that? How about you? When was the last time that happened? What are you giving up so that you can give generously to the Lord and love your neighbor well? Perhaps it's that foreign vacation, maybe that trip to Disney, maybe it's private school for your kids, perhaps it's a larger house or apartment, maybe it's that new kitchen that new car, that regular trip to Starbucks perhaps. Maybe it's eating out. Perhaps it's designer clothes. Maybe it's certain sports you like to follow or watch. Maybe it's that boat you just wish that you could have. This is the kind of giving or the kind of sacrificial giving that's required of us, something that I think that we as Americans really struggle with. You see, while Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, we say, well, deny your neighbor Take up your comforts and follow your dreams. It's a self-centered approach, isn't it? One that I'm often guilty of. It's not Christ-centered. And it stunts my growth as his follower when I do that. As we come to the end, you know, it's hard to hear this, isn't it? I both love this story and I hate this story. I have a love-hate relationship with this story, right? It's this beautiful picture of this woman who does this thing. But then Jesus ruins it by saying, you need to do this too, basically, right? (laughs) I love it until that point, you know? And the temptation is to rationalize it away, right? We could do that really easily. We could pull out some other Bible passages. We could look at some scholars who would talk about that. But listen to what Randy Alcorn says. He says, what are we to think of all the current teaching on money and possessions that emphasizes what does not apply to us? Confident voices assure us that the Old Testament practice of tithing doesn't apply to us. That the New Testament practice of sacrificial giving by liquidating assets and giving to the poor doesn't apply to us. That the biblical prohibition of interest and the restriction of debt don't apply to us. That the commands not to hoard and stockpile assets don't apply to us, and so on. It's time to ask, what does apply to us? What does apply? 
Maybe you've had these thoughts before. Maybe you've thought because of money or something, you know, we can't adopt a child. We can't afford it. Maybe you've thought that before. Or maybe, I can't support that charity. I've got my own family to feed or clothe. Or I can't take that job so I can follow God's call. My family can't afford that. Or we can't give. We'll end up in debt. Listen to Randy Alcorn, though, a second quote. He says this, Christians give. There are no exceptions. Not all will give the same, but all will give. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. It's a sad statistic that four out of ten church attenders give nothing, and another two or three give next to nothing. I wonder why this is. Why is it that we struggle to give? I know it's the same for me. I think sometimes it's because we see it as dues, don't we? Like if I go to church, I've got to pay my dues, right? And, uh, and we don't want to pay dues, do we, right? Or maybe we see it as like, well, it's entertainment. I'm just going to the movies, really. So I'll throw enough in for my ticket to the movies, right? I'll throw that in. Or maybe we see it as a social club. It's just a social club I belong to. Or maybe we struggle with debt. And so we don't know how to deal with this. But what Alcorn is saying, and I think is true throughout Scripture, is that Christians give generously. Now, sometimes people ask me, well, how much should I give? And it reminds me of the question when I was a youth pastor, and Melissa can relate to this, where a student asks you, how far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend, right? How far can I go? When is it I've crossed the line? And the, the question is all wrong, isn't it? Because it's not how far can I go, but how much can I honor God in this relationship? And it's the same with money, right? How much can I honor God with my money? It turns the question upside down, doesn't it? It's not about just making it to the line. It's about saying, how can I honor him? Well, the Old Testament standard is a tithe. If you don't know what a tithe is, it just means 10% of the first fruits of our income. Proverbs 3, we read it today. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It doesn't mention the tithe, but that's what it's alluding to when it talks of first fruits. And it's throughout the Old Testament. Now, some say, well, that the Old Testament is one way, but it's different in the New Testament. But again, Randy Alcorn says this, Being under grace does not mean living by lower standards than the law. Christ systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, and the taking of oaths, and made it clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 5. He never lowered the bar. He always raised it. But he also empowers us by his grace to jump higher than the law demands. And yet, the statistics on giving are not great. Let me just read some of them to you. Only 5 to 10% of Christians tithe. So that's give the 10%. 5 to 10%. So that would be maybe if we took half of that section over there would actually tithe. All right, give what Scripture recommends as a, a minimum, really. 40% of people give nothing. So if we took these two sections... 40% of people, that's not to point at you guys, uh, but 40% of people give nothing or they occasionally throw a 20 in the plate, right? The movie, it's the movie syndrome, right? I'll throw a 20 in the plate. He didn't preach too badly today, kept it pretty short, right? He gets a 20. Um, Christians are giving at 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Okay, that's crazy, isn't it? Um, if Christians tithe, this is in America, there would be an additional $165 billion available. The writer Mike Holmes addresses what would happen if Christians did this. 
25 billion could relieve global hunger and eliminate deaths from preventable diseases within five years. 15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where a majority of people live on less than $1 a day. Think of groups like Water Missions International. 12 billion could end illiteracy. 1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. 100 to 110 billion would be left over for additional ministry expansion. If all of Holy Cross tithed, we would pay off our debt. Gone, right? We'd pay it off. Building debt would be gone. In fact, we could then start to begin planting churches elsewhere where God might be calling us. Think of that. These statistics are incredible, aren't they? How we use our money and our possessions reveals our very hearts. You know, in God's kingdom... It's different than the world's kingdom. In the world's kingdom, we feel like we're a little bit defined by how much we earn, right, or what we own. There's this kind of idea, isn't there, that that defines who I am. But in God's kingdom, we're not defined by what we own or what we earn or what we wear. We're defined by who we are in relation to him. Do we know him? And then, how do we choose to follow him? Do we love him and love others? And this is what should define our story, but particularly in relation to money. It should be, if anything, it should be an action slash love story, okay? It should be like, it's an adventure that we go on as we keep on giving generously, waiting to see how will the Lord provide for us now. But then also a love story, because ultimately it's a love response to what he's done for us. Think about that. It reveals our hearts and how much we love him as well. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians in our New Testament reading today. It says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, when we live with this kind of attitude, with hearts on fire for Jesus because of what he has done for us, it changes everything about who we are. It changes everything with regards to our money as well, doesn't it? Because we start to realize that all we have is his anyway. We're just giving back to him of what he's given to us. Like I said, it's a hard topic, isn't it? I find it hard to preach on this because it challenges me personally. But I want to encourage us all that this is something where we can all grow in, right? And to encourage us to prayerfully consider what God might be calling us to do. How he might be calling us to give further in our own lives. So let's spend uh, the last minute or so just in prayer. Oh, come Holy Spirit. Lord, this is a difficult topic. It cuts close to the bone, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, where we're feeling convicted to listen to you. But where we're feeling condemned to turn it away. And say, that's not of God. That's just the evil one at work. Lord, would you help us to have the courage to check our motives, to check where we're at when it comes to money? Would you help us to trust in you like this poor widow and to be people who are willing to give of everything that we have, Lord Jesus, that we might love you well 
and that we might know where our hearts truly belong. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.